0: This week's story, um, a uh, fellow student from the School of Ministry, and I'm getting to know him better and better, uh, his name is Sir Rhoda Heaver, right? Yeah, I got it? Okay. <laughs> so he, he came to share with you tonight about what God's done in his life, and we're excited to, I'm actually really excited too to, to he- hear it all, because I, well, hear what you share. <laughs> so come on up, sir. Thanks. And by the way, it's not sir like he's a knight, that's his name, sir right? It is. Have you been knighted?
1: That's the lie. But that's no,
0: no, no. Oh, man, that'd be really cool.
1: BC. That's what I used to say. My name is Sir. Uh, it is my birth name. Um, I'm here to. Uh, I was blessed enough to ask to share my testimony tonight. Uh, I share the first part of my testimony to hopefully bring hope. Just trying to scan the audience for age. Um, I share the second part of my testimony to give glory to God. So the first part of my testimony, um, raised in a non-practicing Catholic house, Uh, didn't really know much of Jesus, Uh, didn't know that we had really long, boring services on Christmas Eve and Easter that I didn't really understand. So we didn't really practice, and my parents split at a fairly young age, I was probably eight or nine, and my mom did the best she could to raise us. Uh, very uh, very many poor decisions um, part of those decisions was uh, allowing me to, to hang out with an older gentleman and spend the night at his house and play video games and um, that night he you know, I was molested by him and so I went through the rest of like my early teen years really struggling whether I was gay or straight or what I felt and it, you know if it was right or wrong and um that really created a lot of demons for me uh, mentally just uh, that struggle and so uh, continuing on in life um, i really just had really no never really understood love wanted to be loved uh, desired love i found my value in what others thought of me so a lot of image management and part of that um, you know, was just kind of going through different relationships, trying to find that. I struggled with suicide a lot because I had an expectation, um, not only others' expectations of what I thought they had of me, um, but also myself. I had an expectation that I could never meet. I had this level of what I expected, um, and it just really kind of beat myself up going through that. Uh, there came a point where. Uh, I was 18, I confronted my dad and he said, you're 18 now, you can't blame me anymore for your decisions and what's going on in your life. And I was like, yeah, you're right, I can't, I can't. Um, Went through the rest of my young adult, or young, yeah, I'd say young adult, um, 18 on, uh, getting high um, in in, in drugs and stuff. And um, I used to, I had three sisters and I would date my sister's friends and one of them sitting in the back. when she turned, she never really gave me time. And uh, only when she was separated from her boyfriend, we'd kick back. And so when she turned 18, um, right before she turned 18, she called me. And she's like, hey, let's kick back. I said, okay, cool, let's let's do that. And I was kind of excited because, you know, she never gave me the time of day. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I waited around for her and stuff. And um, we started dating and, and hanging out. And um, we we didn't date till she was 18 at the time I was – I'm six years older than her, so the math on that—I think I've been 24—and um, so um, a lot of issues, guys. Okay, keep that in mind when you do all the other math on this. Uh, a lot of issues, and so when she turned 18, we said, "Okay, we could date now." So we dated, and a month into our mar- uh, our dating, I was like, "Let's let's just get married." Her mom kind of—I felt—gave me the blessing, was like, "Hey, it's better to, to marry than to live in sin." And I was like, "All right, let's get married." And convinced her dad that we knew each other for five years, and so we go and get married in Vegas, probably one of the worst weddings ever. Um, people didn't show up, people were still hungover over, never made it, and it um, wasn't too far into our marriage that um, I started to carry the characteristics of my father. Um, there was one night we were kind of at a, uh, a block party, and, um, and uh, this guy there was with my ex-girlfriend, and I'm with my my wife, and um, we start bantering back and forth, and so me and him get into a fight, and uh, I trip, hit my head, and, and on a sprinkler, and pass out. And I wake up, and I'm like, my pride is really just shot. And my wife at the time was dancing with another friend of mine, which I didn't didn't mind. She even asked me, I was like, ah, it's totally cool. You guys aren't even like touching. It was like, you know. And I said something like, oh, you dancing with him, and you know, my pride was shot, and so. I, you know, and she's like, I'm glad you got your butt kicked. And it was just, I just snapped. And um, I remember turning around and smacking her and then, you know, kind of, you know, taking her over and uh, roughhousing her. I don't know the age range yet, so roughhousing her uh, quite a bit. And um, that was the first time I really ever did that um, to that degree. And um, I, we have anybody under 16 here? No, okay. Uh, I, I remember going back to her house and sitting in the driveway, and um, she really liked Celine Dion, so uh, I was kind of just wallowing in my, my self-pity, and I put on Celine Dion, and I had a gun that I've always had since I was a youth, and so I loaded the gun and three times tried to, to shoot myself, and the gun wouldn't fire. And I remember thinking, I threw the gun down, and I remember thinking, like, once I throw it down, it's going to fire. And so I threw it down, and nothing happened, and, you know, I went and I you know, told her what I was trying to do and I pleaded with her and she took me back. And a couple months went by and a year went by and we were in our own apartment. And this whole time I'm verbally abusive. I'm um, physically abusive. And um, there was one night where she's like, I'm done, I'm leaving. And uh, probably one of the most humbling experiences of my life. Uh, I remember calling my parents saying, I'm done with this. And they were like, is everything okay? I'm like, "Oh, you know what, everything's fine hung up with them and I slipped my wrist and I went and laid in the bathtub. I wake up the next day and I'm still here. I'm like, this sucks, dude, this totally sucks. And uh, her mother, this is the humbling part, comes over and helps me clean up all the blood on my carpet, Uh, helps me clean the the blood out of my jeans. It's very, very humbling. And so um, I realized I was just lost and she got fed up with it. And she finally took a stance and kicked me out after two years. And um, my aunt was dying. She had cancer at the time, and um, I remember visiting her, and she's like, how are you and Christine? We just separated them. Oh, everything's great. We're awesome. You know, like, we're good. You know, we're, you know, she's like, you know, if you don't try, you'll never know. But if you try and it doesn't work, at least you tried. And I was like, okay, kind of spooky, but, yeah, we're good. She ends up passing, and my uncle, um, I needed a place to stay because my wife had kicked me out, so I told my uncle, I'll help you take care of your grandkids. You know, you you have things you're going to be doing. I'll help you take care of the grandkids. I needed a place to stay. It was self-preservation. And um, God allowed me to be there and see him go through this, this phase where he recounted and recalled almost every argument they ever had and, at, and, and was regretful that he would get those 10 minutes back. If we didn't argue this night, I would have a half hour or more with her. If we didn't argue this night, I would have had eight hours more with her. If we didn't argue, and I'm like, this sucks. I called my wife. I said, you know, what, what do I have to do to get back with you I don't want to live a life of regret like this what do I need to do and she said well we, we, we got to have God in the middle of our marriage she literally could have told me I'd have to blow up the Pentagon and I'd been like good I just got to get back in I could smooth talk my way after I get back in the door so you know she's like we got we to have God in the middle of our marriage I said cool count me in went to uh went home started going to church sit in a couple service and i'm like oh this guy's got an agenda you know he's trying to sell his book that just came out you know he's really he's dropping this like how many times he's mentioned his book and i'm just trying to tear it up this whole time and um we went to this small church and um we only went there once and then i got laid off from work and we were calling some of these larger churches that we had been helping at and attending and they were saying I had to be a member in order to get financial assistance. and I'm like, I've been going there for six months. It's ridiculous. Like, come on. Like, I don't think this is biblical, you know. And, I, again, I'm fairly just kind of understanding things. I wouldn't consider myself saved. And um, there was no point where it hit me. There was no point where it was just like, oh, all of a sudden I just started, you know, walking on water. It was something like that. But, um. This church said, you know what, why don't you come in? We'll help you. We only went there once. They knew our names. And they said, Yeah, I would love to help you. I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is this is the stuff I'm hearing about. You know, this is the true stuff. We started going to that church, and I went to a men's retreat, and it just hit me. It hit me in the sense that he died for me. He loves me that much that he died for me. I didn't need to find love in any other person. It was there. It was there waiting for me all along to find out that Christ died on the cross for me was a lot it was it was huge I remember coming home and I was like we're done we're done with sin like we're we're gonna throw out all our DVDs all our CDs we went through our collections and we're piling it up and we were broke as a joke And she you know and I was like what do you you know and we were talking about maybe we sell it you know like at a yard sale we totally get a bunch of money you know and we're like no we can't give our iniquity. We can't sell our iniquity, our sin to other people. That, that wouldn't be right. We took it out to this dumpster behind our apartments. We just started cracking them, scratching them, whatever we had to do so that someone couldn't use them. And put them in there. And The, the redeeming work that he's done, I don't struggle with suicide, which I've literally struggled with my whole life. Um, from the time I was um, molested on, I was constantly taking pills or constantly trying to Hang myself. Um, I was a cutter. Um, It was anything to just feel something. And he redeemed that. He redeemed my marriage. We're going on 11 years of being married. We have two beautiful little girls. We have a son who's in the air force. Um, It's, it's he's foster. It wasn't like we had a kid when she was, um, you know, six. But, um, (laughs) you know, we have a we have an adopted son who's in the air force. He's redeemed our marriage. He's allowed us to use um, our testimonies to help others in similar situations. We were allowed to go on Oprah on national television um, and share that Jesus freed us from this. It was one of the only times she ever filmed live instead of recording it. Uh, Just so many things that you see the Lord doing and to realize that I did nothing to deserve this. There's nothing I could have done to deserve his love. And so the second part of this is, is giving the glory to him and, and, and relating it to if you're in that spot where you maybe, um, you, know, are, uh, you, know, you know the Lord, but you still struggle with uh, depression or you still struggle with um, your view and how maybe people view you, know that the Lord wants that. He wants to meet you in the middle of that depression. He wants, to, he wants you to understand that he truly values you So much so that he would give his only son, that he would give himself as a ransom so that you can just have a relationship and know the love of the Father. So I just want to encourage you guys in that. I thank you for allowing me to share this. And that's it for me. God bless, guys.
0: Thank you, sir, and thank you, Christy, uh, for bringing the family over so that we could hear the story. God is an amazing God, a God who's a redeemer. He's also a just God. And uh, before we get into the message tonight, I want you to know that I have an agenda. I've never written a book in my life, so I have nothing to sell. But I do want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want you to know what it means to be forgiven of your sin. And that's nothing that uh, you have to pay for. It's free. Jesus Christ did it for you. All you need to do is surrender your life. So... Uh, Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, and if we could uh, change up the lights. Mark 2 and verse 1 for the Scripture, and we're continuing on in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2 and verse 1, all right, and when He returned to... And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Lord God, we just ask for your blessing as we read your word. And God, as we learn from it tonight, we pray that you would change us, Lord. I pray, God, that no person would come. Leave here the same that they came. But God, as we are confronted with your word, as your word teaches us how to live godly lives, lives in conformity to you, I just pray, Lord, that uh, you would have your way within us. And we just ask you now to bless the words out of my mouth so that I may bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> I, uh, there's something about authority. And one of the things we've been talking about in Mark's gospel and one of the things that will keep coming up is people will marvel that Jesus speaks with authority, that it's not like the other scribes and the Pharisees. When Jesus teaches, it's with a great authority, and tonight is no different. I, uh, I was told a story by a, a missionary friend of mine, Brian McDaniels. We, we went down to Haiti, uh, let's see, it would have been fall of 2013, I think, that's right. Um, And uh, we went down to Haiti and to work at uh, the Bible Training Center of Haiti. It's uh, through Cross the Light Ministries. And uh, it was my first time meeting Brian. And Brian is one of those guys that when you meet him, he will just, I don't know, he's like a a spark. I mean, he he will just uh, really change the way you think about stuff. And he goes a mile a minute, you're like, What? Uh, everywhere you go with Brian, he'll just be talking to somebody. He'll meet somebody who's like, hey, hey, you, come here. Share the gospel with this guy. All right. And he's moving on to the next one. Hey, you, you share the gospel with this person. You're like, what? Okay, I'm going to share the gospel with this person. And you don't even speak French, but he tells you to share the gospel. You share the gospel. Well, uh, Brian has a very unique ministry down in Haiti. His ministry is teaching young men the Bible so that they can go and become pastors, And that's why it's called the Bible Training Center, Haiti Bible Training Center. And so I had the privilege of going down there and teaching for a few days on how to study the Bible accurately and teach it. So I did uh, what we call inductive Bible study, teaching observation, interpretation, and application, those three aspects of Bible study. And of course, I had an interpreter who was interpreting into French because my French is not, not very good. Well, what I found out is in Haiti, in order to have uh, to become an actual pastor and to be recognized as a pastor or to start a church, you had to graduate from a certified government seminary. And turns out, Brian McDaniel's Haiti uh, Bible Mission Training Center was a certified NGO, non-governmental organization, and it was certified as a seminary in Haiti. And I, so I was asking him, how did that come about that you got certified? I mean, you just came down here in the middle of the earthquake. You, you, you came down here with nothing and said, Lord, you want me to start a, a Bible training center? What should I do? And this is how he got his first pupils. He walked through praying through the tent cities and the streets because he had this idea. I'm going to just walk around and wait for the Lord to point people out to me, and I'm going to approach them and say, all right, come on, follow me, just like you did with the disciples, Lord. Come follow me. I'm going to make you into a pastor. And he did that. He walked around, and I know it sounds insane, but that, you got to know Brian to know how insane this guy is. But it's, it's one of those levels of insane where you go, it is insane, but at the same time we see the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, so cool. We'll just go with it. And so he walked around and he found guys and he said, hey, you want to be a pastor? Come on, come with me. And, and they began following him. And that was the first graduating class of the Haiti Bible Training Center, of which I think uh, six of the seven who graduated planted churches. And one of the, a few of the churches are just bursting at the seams. They have thousands of people within them. The, the young pastors don't even know what to do with all the people they have. Because the nation is hungry for the gospel. They're hungry for good teaching. And that's one of the things we take for granted here in the U.S. But going back to how Brian got certified, Brian, through a turn of events, ended up renting a house from the second most powerful man in the Haitian government. Through a turn of events, Brian communicated to this guy that he had the answer for Haiti's cholera problem. If you remember, with the earthquake came cholera. And this man, this government official called him up and said, you have the answer? He's like, yes. You need to Pray. Here, I'll read a passage, and he read a passage from Exodus about the, the waters being poisonous, and what you needed to do was turn and fear God. And he, and he basically told this government official over the phone. And the interesting part about it was this government official went home, opened up, a, found a Bible, cracked it open, and started reading it and started praying. And uh, through a turn of events, this government official took Brian into the room that approves. NGOs, and this is like a process that takes most groups years and years and years to do, and tons of bribes and everything like that. In fact, there's orphanages down there in Haiti that have never been approved for an NGO. And he takes Brian into this room and says, hey, I want you to make this guy an NGO. And they said, oh, okay. And so Brian said, but wait, before you do that, i got to share something with you. Let me tell you about Jesus Christ. And he began sharing the gospel with each of these people in this group, sharing about how Christ came and he died for them and died and took their sins upon himself so that we could be right with God. And it wasn't anything you had to pay for, it was free. And he gives an altar call. Now, I don't remember if anybody actually gave their life to Christ, but certainly they were like, okay, let's get this guy out of here. And they stamped him and they gave him an NGO. But the thing about it was, all that you needed was someone with authority to make it happen. The rest of the Christian groups and missionary groups that were down there, even, even some uh, secular aid organizations were like, you got an NGO status? How'd you get that? Brian can bring anything in through the docks with no taxation. That's crazy in Haiti because the taxes are so high through the docks and the imports because there's so many wills to Greece, bribes to pay, that a box of cereal in Haiti costs like $15. I know, it's crazy, right? Especially for a poor country. But God just made it so that he was able to become the status. So he actually gets, he brings in stuff for the other groups and whatnot. They all come through him because of what God did through him. But it was all just about having authority. And we're going to see in today's text, Jesus proves his authority. We've talked about how he teaches with authority. But now we're going to see that he shows his authority. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days. Remember, Jesus had been out in the wilderness. Crowds were gathering. They were following Him. News was spreading about His miracles that He was working. People were bringing the sick and the lame and the blind and everybody else to Jesus to be healed. But remember, Jesus' primary ministry wasn't just healing. It was preaching, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That was His main main ministry. Now, By the way, uh, let me just talk about the city Capernaum. You'll hear this pronounced so many different ways. And the worst part about the Greek language is you can look it up and learn how to pronounce it in the Greek, but it won't even make sense. You'll never hear a pastor pronounce it that way. But the way the the word is pronounced, you'll hear sometimes people say Capernaum, Capernaum, uh, Capernaum. And the actual word is Capernaum. Like That's how you would actually pronounce the city. But this was probably the home of Peter that Jesus had made his home. And we see that he's back at home, and many were gathered. They knew who the guy was with authority. They wanted to hear from him. They wanted to see what he was going to do next. Many were gathered, so there was no more room, not even at the door. The house was packed. And Jesus, what, what did we find Jesus doing? He was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the word to them. When we think about church, Some of us have different ideas about what church is. I I, I talk to different people, and I'll I'll sometimes get their idea of what church is about. Some people say, well, church, it's about singing. Church, it's about hearing some guy lecture and go on and on and on, and me fall asleep and wake up. In fact, before I was saved, I remember that was kind of the thing. I knew I'd go to church with my family, fall asleep, wake up, okay, cool, we're good. I just had no understanding of the gospel at the time. But we have different ideas of church. Well, I want you to know that It is important, the teaching and proclaiming the Word of God. That's one of the main things about church. That's one of the main reasons for our church's existence is so that the believers can learn the Word of God, they can be taught the Word of God, and that they can go and then do the Word of God. Not that we come into church, we hear a message, we feel good about ourselves for five minutes or whatever it is, and then we leave, but rather that we're changed every time. Now, whether or not the preacher is good or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the Holy Spirit applies the Word to your life, and that starts with you. It starts with you before you come in this room saying, Lord, what are you going to teach me tonight? No matter what Dave says, whatever stuff he, however he puts his foot in his mouth this week, Lord, what are you going to teach me? And and that's what you want to come in with, ready to learn, ready to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ, from the Holy Spirit, and then go out changed. Second purpose for church is worship, to worship corporately together, to sing before our God, encouraging each other singing uh, psalms and spiritual songs, encouraging one another in love. It's another purpose for church that we worship together, encouraging. It makes a big difference because I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but unless you work in a church, the majority of people that you run into during the week are non-Christians. I I mean, I work in a church, and the majority of people that I run into during the week are non-Christians. And sometimes... Sometimes the more we, we are with the unbelievers, the more their thinking influences us versus our thinking influencing them. So that's another reason for church, to be encouraged, to know how we should live, be encouraged, pray for one another, share our struggles with each other. Last reason for church is the proclaiming of the gospel. We want to share the gospel message every time. Now, I wouldn't say that the church's primary responsibility is is uh, altar calls. We've never actually done an altar call in here. Um, it would, it, you know, I don't know what it would look like. I mean, we could do it, I guess, but um, but we've just never done it. We share the message. We share the gospel. But the primary person responsible for the gospel is you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus says. You go proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all the nations. It didn't, Jesus never said, bring ye them to church so they hear the gospel. No, it says you, you go. So a part of church is you being taught, you thinking more and more like Christ, you preparing to go out there and share the gospel message with the world. I, that's what I pray that this service is all about. I want this service to be all about people who don't know the Lord coming, people feeling comfortable who may not be comfortable in church generally. I I hope it is that way. And so Jesus is there preaching the Word, speaking the Word to them, helping them to understand the Word of God. Now, what was the Word of God? What did they have? Well, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They were, he was teaching the law. He was expounding on the law and the Torah and the prophets, helping them to understand the truths of God. Ultimately, he was going to help them understand who he was. Who do we find there in the crowd? Well, we find people, and we also find the scribes. The scribes were sitting there, it says in, in the passage in verse 6. The scribes were sitting there. Now, it's interesting, the difference between a follower of Jesus a disciple of Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, scribes were, they were well-trained in the law. That's what they were all about. They were trained in the law, and sometimes they're called lawyers, but not like a lawyer like you and I think of today. We're talking about somebody who has has studied and studied and studied the Mosaic law so that they can help people understand when someone's breaking the law, when they're breaking God's law versus when they're keeping it. That's what the scribe's job, job was all about. But notice that they're sitting there. See, the scribes and the Pharisees always got the positions of honor, the places of honor. They always got the front row seat and they would sit down, they were comfortable and they would go, okay, let's hear what this guy's got to say. I wonder if he knows anything about the gospel. Uh, I'm just kidding because obviously they didn't know the gospel. That was a, a failed Nacho Libre quote. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> there, there's one tonight. Um, but, but they would sit there, the difference between a kingdom citizen, a Christian, a follower of Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees is anyone who wants to be great in the kingdom of God has got to become the least. We've got to become the servant. We don't look for the place of honor. I, I didn't start out up here. I got to be up here because I know how to change a toilet gasket because I, I know how to pick up trash. Because I know how to sweep. I know how to go, oh, hey, Dave, we need you to go take care of this mess over there. I, I, I know how to get calls at 4.30 in the morning. By the way, the church got broken into. Can you come down? The police are here. Okay. That, that's how I got to be up here. Pastor Rod sat me down when I was uh, new in ministry and I wanted to come in. And he said, here's the deal. Be faithful with a few things, the little things, and God will put you in charge of many. That's what you got to do. Be faithful with a few things. You serve. You set an example. Don't, don't look to lead. Look to serve. And that's what we do. That's why you'll see pastors around here all the time taking out trash, cleaning up after people. That's what we do because we're, we're servant leaders in the kingdom of God. We're not looking to be served. And if we are, we're in the wrong church because that's not what church looks like. And I'd like to challenge you with that tonight too. Do you come to church saying, I want to serve. I'm ready to serve. I want to serve Christ's kingdom because that's what it's all about being in the kingdom of God. So these scribes were sitting there and they came with presuppositions about Jesus. We all come with presuppositions, right? We all come with ideas like, oh, you know, I wonder what he's going to say right now and whatever the case. But they, in their hearts, had already kind of decided what was going to happen and what he was going to say. And Sir shared with you guys about how he, he came to church with presuppositions. Oh, this guy wants to sell me a book. That's what that's all about. He came with these presuppositions of I know what to expect. But you know what's interesting? If we can let go of those presuppositions and we can actually start to begin to see Christ for who he is, if we can see the mission that Christ came to accomplish, then we can begin to surrender our lives to him. We can learn what it means to have true joy, unspeakable joy, and peace with God. And, and that moves us into purpose in life, just like Christ. See, without God, purpose is questionable. Why am I here? What am I doing? What's the point of life? I don't think there's any more depressing view, worldview than a naturalistic worldview. We just evolved. We're here. And eventually, the universe will grow cold and dark and the light will burn out, and nothing will exist. Wow. So you're telling me that there's no purpose for anything I do? Nothing carries over? There's nothing, there's nothing good I can ultimately do that will carry on into eternity? Nope, nothing just burns out. What a sad, depressing worldview. Then you go, what's the purpose of everything? Exactly. But see, knowing Christ gives us purpose. We begin to understand that purpose is found in worshiping God, loving Him. So we find in this story, four friends come bringing a paralytic, carry, uh, a paralytic on a mat. Now this bed, this mattress that they were carrying him on would have been a sack kind of filled with hay. And, and when we begin to think about this paralytic being carried in by the friends, um, it's kind of interesting because we usually think of a paralytic in the context, context of our world. We think about like, oh, how come he just will himself over there? And then we start to think in first century terms and like, wait a minute, what would it be like being a paralytic in Jesus' day? Whoa, there's no paved roads. There's no parks. There, well, wait a minute, there's no, there's no state assistance. You're completely dependent on others for help. You can't do anything on your own except lay there on a mat. Hey, I'd like to go outside and see people. Okay, we'll carry you out there. Hey, listen, i got to run some errands. Just hang out for a couple hours. I'll be back. You're stuck. And it gets worse than that because in Jesus' world, in, the, in, the, in this world, sin was tied with sickness. So if someone was paralyzed, it was obviously because they had done some grievous sin, them or their parents. We read the account of John when Jesus heals the blind man, but before he heals him, the disciples ask, whose sin, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. So that this man could, this man's blind so he could glorify God. That's why he's blind, because Jesus was about to heal him. But sin and sickness was tied in, much like the Buddhist worldview. The Buddhist view is that if you're handicapped, it's because you deserve it. You did something else in a previous life. That's why you're stricken. It's actually a very sad worldview, and it's very uh, offensive to us, especially uh, living in a post-Christian America, because uh, we're kind of taught to look after people and help out people, and we kind of understand a social gospel. So for us, it's like, well, that's a really offensive idea to say that someone deserves to be handicapped or they deserve to be sick. Because of some sin. So sin and sickness was always tied together. The most vivid understanding of this passage I ever had was actually when I was down in Haiti. When I was down there, I was, um, we had the privilege of going over to like an orphanage. And it was one of the nicest orphanages in the area because of uh, the fact that some missionaries had really put money into it and whatnot. And it was the only orphanage in the area that could actually care for the handicapped and the sick. And so we got to go down there and work with some handicapped people. And I found I I found a a neat way to bridge the gap with with uh, the handicap. What I did was I pulled out my iPhone and I I turned on the camera and flipped it, and then I I started filming video just with so they could see themselves. And it just broke the ice so quick with them. Because you know, they see me come in, hey, hey, what's up? And they're like, who's the big white guy? You know? And, um, and so I started videotaping them, and it was awesome. Let me show you this quick video. Como, como, I or say hello. <laughs> My friend's back. Hi. A... Can you wave your hands? What do, you, what do you want to do? How old are you? Hey. Yeah, look at that. You had a great smile. Look at your smile. You have a good smile. Say hi. (laughs) That's you (laughs) Look at you. That's you. You want to try and say something? Mm. Bonsoir. Mm. Comment tu vo Comment te uh, Yeah. Como <laughs> Como. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it's trying to loop there. I uh I don't know French obviously. Um, so I finally found one person in Haiti who spoke Spanish and I was like, "Awesome. I can use my Spanglish and translate through her to sp- the French." But um you know it was interesting because these boys uh were there laying on a mat. That's what they were just laying there. And I don't know if you saw the flies landing on them, but they didn't have the capability to even shoo away the flies. So they would lay there with their arms you know, um Uh, stuck and they would just kind of lay there looking at stuff. And uh, to get the interaction with us and our team and that little video camera that, I mean, they constantly wanted to watch it over and over and over and it made them so happy, the interaction. But these two boys were so dependent upon people loving them and caring for them, they couldn't do a thing without other people. I'm sure this paralytic man, this paralyzed man in the story He obviously had the capability of his hands, but I'm sure it was much like that. He couldn't do anything else. He couldn't work. He couldn't provide for himself. He couldn't go get a glass of water. He couldn't do anything except by the mercies of others. And yet these four men, these four loving friends say, we know what to do with you. We're going to get you to Jesus. That's what we're going to do. So they begin to tear apart the roof, It's the, the scriptures tell us. Now, you may be thinking about a roof like what we have. That's not what you're looking at there. Uh, root, these roofs were, were wood beams just st- set across uh, these cross beams, and then they would put mud and grass and dirt on top, and then that would, it was called a mud and wattle roof. And uh, every year, every fall, they'd have to re-roll these roofs to prepare for the winter. So it wasn't a big deal to see someone tearing up a roof because, you know, otherwise the crowd would be like, what are you tearing up my roof for? You know, I one time saw firefighters rip into a roof and I'm like, ooh, man, that's going to be expensive to fix. I mean, the, and the roof crashed and I'm like, oh, man. So th- these guys started digging through the roof and you can imagine Jesus is teaching and dust is falling and then light shows, shows through. And this man comes lowering down through this roof and Jesus says something so intriguing son your sins are forgiven oh okay now he said this because he saw their faith he saw the faith of their friends and he saw that hey if we get this friend to Jesus Jesus knows what to do with our friend he, he can he can deal with our friend But certainly they weren't expecting, son, your sins are forgiven. They were expecting, rise up and walk. Go go on out, you're good. So it was kind of that that anticlimactic like, oh. (laughs) But see, Jesus never dealt in the peripheral things. He always dealt with the priorities. And He still does to this day. So many people call on Jesus for these peripheral things. Oh, you know, Jesus is my friend when, when uh, I, I lost my job. He'll be my Lord then. But they never stop to think, of maybe I lost my job so I can finally cry out to him and seek him for forgiveness. Oh, Jesus, I lost my girlfriend. Maybe you can help me with that. He doesn't want you to cry out to you about that. He wants you to cry out about your salvation first. The rest will come. The rest God will deal with in time. But the priority is salvation. The priority is the need for sins to be forgiven. Now remember I said that in Jesus' day they saw the sin and the sickness simultaneously. And we actually can read a story from from a a tablet found at Qumran, the caves around the Dead Sea there. And it records Nabonidus, King Nabonidus. And he, uh, King Nabonidus, uh, was the dad of Belshazzar, and so let me explain who these are. During the exile of the Jews around five, uh, 595, when the Jews were carried off to Babylon, we had Nebuchadnezzar, then the next king to rule was Nabonidus, but the Bible says it was Belshazzar, and we have the story in Daniel 7 about, or Daniel 5, when um, uh they're having a party and all of a sudden a finger comes out and writes on the wall and they say, well, who can interpret this? And and they go and get Daniel and Daniel comes in and says, okay, I got good news and bad news for you guys. Well, actually, it's only bad news. Uh, God doesn't want you blaspheming him and now you're all going to die. The kingdom's going to That's it. Sorry. Too bad. What? A total bummer. <laughs> Way to ruin the party, Daniel. But Belshazzar, for years, was uh, the Bible was criticized for saying that Belshazzar was king. They said there was no evidence, archaeological evidence, that Belshazzar was king. Until they found later on that Belshazzar was actually the son of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus didn't care for ruling in Babylon, so he went over to, to Media and ruled there. And he left his son in charge of Babylon. Well, Nabonidus, while he was gone, fell sick. And what he wrote was this, I was smitten by a malignant inflammation for seven years and banished far from men. Namanidus got the sickness that wouldn't even allow him to be around other, other people. And, his, and he goes on to say this, until I prayed to the God most high and an exorcist forgave my sins. He was a Jew from the exiles. You see, the culture of the Jews completely understood sin and sickness. That's how they viewed it. Of course, we don't view it that, t- that way so much today. But I do think that sometimes we should ask ourselves, is there a sin in my life that God is striking me with sickness so I can deal with? Because God will do things to get our attention. I don't think we should ever just write off anything that happens to us in our lives. We should say, Lord, why would you, why, why would you have me to go through this? through this trial. Sometimes it's just so we can minister to others. Sometimes it is because of a sin. We don't know. But here's what we do know about this paralytic man. In order for the Jews to understand what Jesus was going to do, his greatest need was to forgive his sins. And so Jesus says it. Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, the scribes are quick to catch Jesus on that, and they say, blasphemy. You're, You're not the real deal. Fake. You can't say these things about God. Jesus already knew what they were saying in their hearts. He said, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk? See, it's, a, it's actually a, a pretty simple thing to say, hey, your sins are forgiven. You're good. Go your way. And as far as you know, some guy spoke and said the sins are forgiven, but we can't see sin. Sin is, is, is not something physical. It's not something tangible. Tangible. We can't sense it. We can't see sins being forgiven. But we sure can see if someone rises up and a paralyzed person rises up and walks away. That we can see. That's the harder thing to say. To tell someone, sins are forgiven, go your way. Well, who are you to say that? And the scribes were right. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. It is only God. No man has the authority to forgive sins. In fact, the Bible tells us ultimately all of our sin is against God. You may lie to a person. You may steal from a person. You may cheat somebody. You may cheat uh, on a test. Whatever it is, those sins ultimately are against God. And it's to God whom we have to reckon those sins with. So, the scribes are right in calling Jesus out. But his answer is so interesting. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. (laughs) The story isn't so much about the friends. It's not so much about the paralyzed person. It's about Jesus' authority. Jesus has authority. He has authority to heal. He has authority to forgive sins. And here's the proof. Rise, pick up your mat and go home. And immediately he rose. There was no physical therapy. He didn't say, and the physical therapist came in and started stretching him, working out, put some ice stem on it and got it all stimulated and okay, you're good to go. No, it was immediately. This man had been paralyzed for years. He picks up his bed and goes out. And the crowd, all those watching, were amazed and look at what happened. They glorified God Saying, we never saw anything like this. I, I, I don't think those would fit into a worship song. We never saw anything like this. No, I'm not sure. But <laughs> I just did my biggest fear sung in front of people. Um, <laughs> but they glorified God. They were amazed at what God could do. Seeing that because he had the authority to forgive the sins, he had the authority to take, tell the man, take up, take up your mat and walk. Son of Man is an interesting title that Jesus uses, and, and actually there's some question about the Mark and account here that Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, because Mark has a thing going on in his gospel, it's called the Messianic Secret. And we actually don't see the word, the term Son of Man show up again until after Peter makes his confession in chapter 8. Then it shows up a whole bunch of times. Um, but, but uh, he has the Messianic secret where Jesus says, okay, don't go tell anybody. Keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody I did this. Don't tell anybody. But once Peter makes the confession, it's all in the open. It's like the tada moment in Mark's gospel that he is Messiah. Well, the Son of Man refers back to Daniel. Daniel chapter uh, 7. And I, I've got the text here for you. Um, let me go to it. Daniel 7 verse 13. Well, I'm just going to look up here. It's easier than going to it. So this one coming, like the Son of Man, this is a, a messianic title. It's saying that, hey, he's the one. He's the one who's going to eventually establish his kingdom. He's the one who's coming to save, save the people, save the Jews. So the Jews would be familiar with this term. Now, I don't know if Mark is putting this in as a parenthetical statement, Son of Man, so that you may know the Son of Man, and because this is a, he's obviously writing the gospel post-Christ's resurrection. Maybe he's doing it that Maybe Jesus is saying it straight up to everybody, but nobody gets it yet. Maybe he's actually talking to the scribes and then going to the man and saying, so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority. Rise up, take your mat and walk. We just don't know. But it is important for us to understand the title because the title is showing his authority and the title is saying he is the man. Literally, he's the one we want to go to. And I think there's an application we can draw out of this, especially from the friends. Good friends always lead people to Jesus. Good friends always lead people to Jesus. Now, I don't necessarily just mean in the gospel sense of preaching the gospel, that's definite. We always want to be a good friend to people, we want to be a a good brother, a good sister, a good husband. We want to lead people to Jesus in the sense of them having their sins forgiven. But I mean, in every day, in every way, all acts of life, we should be leading people to Jesus because He is the one that has the authority. When our friends are going through tough times, do we say, well, what does the Scripture say about this? Or let me pray with you about this. And, and I don't mean that when someone's just lost somebody, you go, okay, let's have a Bible study, you know, in their grief. I, I'm not saying that at all. Deathbeds—it's just comforting to go and affirm the truths that they already know, and love them, and pray with them. People always appreciate prayer. I've been amazed that even even people that are distant from God, when you say, "Hey, can I pray for you about this?" they're like, "Yeah." It's actually disarming to a lot of people because they don't know how to pray. They don't know how to communicate with the Lord, and for a believer to step in and intercede on their behalf, it's awesome. We always should be leading people to Jesus, helping people understand, how should I deal with this problem at work? What about this ethical issue? What about the, um, the girl on Facebook who was letting everybody know that she was going to end her life and, and had this blog going? And I remember seeing different comments, my wife even um, commented on a part of it, and um, they were saying, you know, hey, just stay out of her business. She has every right to take her life. It's, it's interesting that the world thinks that life and non-life are comparable. That doesn't even make sense. That, that uh, not dying is actually better than living in suffering. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that at all. Unless you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, dying's way better. It's like, sweet, I get to be with the Lord. But this is what I mean by take our friends to Jesus. In those times, Jesus gives us purpose. Jesus helps us understand what suffering is all about because he himself suffered and suffered greatly on our behalf. So you can always be a good friend. You can always take your friends to Jesus because he is the one that has authority. He is the one that has the power to change lives. And by, uh, don't, and believe, believe me on this, this paralyzed man would never forget that day nor the friends that brought him there. I can just imagine afterwards them talking about it. Years down the road, they're getting together for dinner. Hey, I still can't believe you guys dug through that dude's roof so you could lower me down and I could get healed. You better believe they never forgot what happened that day. So I want to encourage you, bring your friends to Jesus. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much, God, that you have the authority, God. You can heal us from our sin, from our sickness. You can heal us from our hurts, the emotional wounds that we've suffered over life, God. You can heal it all, Lord. Sir, testify to how you took away the feelings of depression and suicidal thoughts in his own life, God, that you healed. Lord, we thank you that you are a healer. By your stripes, we are healed. Lord, I pray for each and everyone in this room tonight, Lord God, that they would seek after you with their whole heart, that they would never be the same. They would always be different because they met the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen.